0: You're listening to the Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.
1: I have a big announcement. One, I'm fully vaccinated. And two, after over a year, we are back in the studio with the Artful Periscope. Well... What are the threads that connect us to a series of events? Out of the darkness, into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, we have our traveling shoes on. First, we go to England to have a conversation with Heather Martin, the author of The Reacher Guy, a biography of the great Lee Child. After the break, we go back to Brooklyn, New York, with the author of First Responder, A Memoir of Life, Death, and Love on New York City's front lines. And finally, we go out to Lawrence, Kansas with bookstore owner, Danny Kane, with just a thought a commentary. Well, Heather Martin, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Now, I'm the first one to admit there are big gaps in my education. And knowledge. They are making a connection between you, Lee Child and you as Boswell. So, what are they referencing when they say Heather Martin is Boswell to Lee Child, or for <laughs> Lee Child in a sense?
2: Oh, they're they're referencing the 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 work of um, Dr. Johnson, who um, had his Boswell. Was, Boswell was his amanuensis, the person who listened to him and who interacted with him and wrote down what he said and wrote The Life of of, of of Johnson, of Life of Dr. Johnson. And uh, just a very, very famous pairing, a little bit like um, uh, Holmes and Watson, if you like.
1: Right, I like that one. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, in a different genre. <laughs>
1: uh, let me see if I captured this correctly. If I didn't, feel free to, to give me the proper way you wrote this. But I think you wrote, I learned my literacy criticism at Cambridge, where the author was dead, and there was nothing beyond the text. You're now dealing with a living, breathing person. How was that for you, and yet, you have to make any adjustments?
2: <laughs> well, um, it's been quite a long time since I did that work at Cambridge, of course, so I've liberated myself from some of those theories somewhat um, already prior to meeting Lee. But, you know, the thing is, I was a a, a reader like you, I gather, right. I'd read all the books, loved them. But really, and really as a Reacher reader, I was very pure. I never gave the author a thought. And um, I think that's just what Lee Child Child would like to hear. You know, the books were sufficient and all his name meant to me back then was uh, the guarantee of a good read. You know, if you saw Lee Child on the cover, you knew you were going to get a good read. But then as chance would have it, I met Lee Child. And I don't think I would have written this biography you know, it wasn't prompted by my love of Reacher. Right. That wouldn't have been sufficient. Uh, it was prompted really by meeting the man himself, the man who'd written Reacher, because although Reacher himself is fascinating, perhaps unsurprisingly, the man who created him is twice as fascinating. He somehow contains Reacher, but he also exceeds him and, you know, eludes him. And um we met socially um in New York, and we basically began a conversation about reading and writing and we became friends. And kind of one thing led to another and that, that conversation just kept on going. He kept telling me little stories right. about his life, uh, about growing up in, in England and uh, how he got to where he is now. And I just, you know, I was hooked. <laughs> I was hooked as much by the stories he told me about his own life as, as by the Reacher stories. And, and I think it was a, quite an organic process that, you know, I just reached the point where I wanted to do the biography, and he accepted that it was going to happen.
1: <laughs> Here's what people who've been following Lee Child for many years, and I guess over 24 books, somewhere in that, in that number, is that correct? He's written that many well, books? Well, I think
2: of it as, I, again, I'm a bit of a purist. I think of it as 24 because it's the 24 sole authored novels. Right. Obviously, you know, it's, 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 he's moved on. He's semi-retired. Uh, and it's become, if you like, more of a franchise. So right. there are actually 25 and the 26th is due out this year. But I I, I was actually rather, again, this is chance, really. But I was rather pleased that my biography sort of, you know, ended <laughs> with the last of those sole author books because I, w- I was focusing on, on the creator of right. Jack Reacher.
1: My um, guess is Heather Martin. Her book is called The Reacher Guy, a biography of Lee Child. Now... I just watched on PBS here in the States, a program about Frank Baum, who created and wrote, originally called The Wonderful World of Oz. And why he was so interesting to me was, the program goes back into his history, and his background, his personal life, his private life, and whole, all of that shows up in the books that he created. And he also became, well, he had many different jobs, lived all over America, made money, lost money, made money, lost money. Ultimately, at the end, he became very, very wealthy. And I'm thinking about how you describe the life of Jim Grant, Lee child. I think there's something that's a parallel there for me. He had an interesting life, but his life comes in later on through the books that he writes and the character, Jack Reacher, he creates. Would you agree or disagree Uh, with that?
2: I would absolutely agree with that, And, and so would he. Um, and, and actually, that picks up on the point you you know you alluded to earlier—that concept of the death of the author. That we, that we shouldn't really um, uh, expect to find the author in his writing. But he's very upfront about it. In fact, he jokes about it. He always says, "You know, Reacher is me. I just turned down the violence to make right. it more right. plausible." And and yeah, I found as I got to know him and as I reread the books, it was a very different experience because I could see the stories that he told me about his own life, you know, obviously transposed, transformed, altered in many ways, but I could see them in those Reacher stories, you know, the relationships with his family, uh, the the sort of place he came from, the sorts of frustrations he felt, the desire for freedom, you know, wanting to get out, get away, throw off all those sort of, uh, responsibilities those mundane responsibilities and and, you know the the dream of of escape I could see all that um you know in the books and even just down to tiny little details places he's lived in cars he'd driven (laughs) um things he'd learned about at school essays he'd written at school traces of those things are all there in the book so yeah I would say it's a very similar sort of thing and of course it's not exactly a rags to riches story I mean he, he came from a a lower middle class um, background. But, you know, it wasn't exactly hand to mouth, but they didn't have money to spare. And of course, the transformation has been great. And I guess um, when I got to know Lee Child, I knew Jack Reacher, I knew Lee Child, but to write the biography, I had to find out about Jim Grant.
1: Right. so here's where I'm going to go with this next question in terms of the conversation. There are great programs coming out of. Britain, Great Britain on the British Broadcasting Company BBC. I'm a big fan of the high quality of them. And I can give you a bunch of names. Um they're beautifully shot. One is uh, All Creatures Great and Small. Beautifully, beautifully shot. Now I read James Harriet many years ago. But the one I'm referencing right now it was also on PBS called My Grandparents' War, featuring four prominent British actors Mark Rylance, Helen Bonham Carter, Kristen Scott Thomas. And Kerry Mulligan. So I wonder going back into the Grant family tree, because Reacher comes out of the military, how does that impact in terms of his thought process based on what his relatives went through in terms of World War One and World War Two? Was he that influence him at all in terms of creating what he writes about Reacher?
2: Uh, absolutely. And um I, I think He emphasized to me very early on that he thought the single biggest difference between his generation and his daughter's generation was that um, awareness of the war. And that, you know, for him, it it sort of colored and was present in every aspect of of his life, but for his daughter and for subsequent generations, you know, they barely were conscious of it having happened. So he sees that as a very radical shift, but certainly it dominated his boyhood. I mean, he was born... OK, he was born, like, nearly 10 years after the end of the war. But, you know, the legacy was still very, um, you know, it sort of lay heavily uh, um, on, on his parents' generation, obviously. And his Irish grandfather, who fought in the Great War, was, you know, wounded on the first day of action. He was sent to Gallipoli, and he was wounded on that very first day. Right. And, and so the whole time that um, Jim knew that grandfather... You know, he was um he he, he was walking with a, a wooden leg, stumping around on it, rather grumpy and in pain, suffering for the rest of his life really, um, from that experience. And then his father as well, his father was luckier, his father was more fortunate, he was in the you know, European um, on the Western Front of the European campaign, and he wasn't wounded, but he he was one of the first to sort of uh, enter. Uh, the the Bergen-Belsen camp, um, mm-hmm. you know, saw the right. uh, you know, unimaginable horrors of war, and, and 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 there was a kind of and that affected and that definitely coloured his character, and you know, there's a sort of greyness <laughs> that that seemed to sort of um, you know colour all of of uh, Jim Grant's upbringing really. I mean, he's the first thing his mother did when he was born was take out of the ration card in his name. He didn't need it, but you know, that right. was uh, it right. was anticipated that he would. And when he was a little boy, they would um they would uh walk to into town, you know, she'd push him in his big pram and they'd walk to see the new Coventry Cathedral. He was born in Coventry, um, the new cathedral being bought, uh, being built right next to the sort of firebombed ruins of the old. And he played all his games, his football games, everything else, you know, on sort of bomb sites rubble fields of rubble rather than grass so yeah he, he was he was very very conscious of that legacy and um uncertain how he was going to escape from that that sort of heritage really
1: All right kind of- i'm larry davidson this is the podcast artful periscope my guest let me reintroduce her is heather martin the book is called the reacher guy biography of Lee child let me tell you what this book did for me when i sit down with a writer I say there are two stories. First story is inside the covers of the book. The second story is outside of that, their life and what they bring into it. So I don't need a response, but I did want to tell you this because this this is really special to me. Your book gives us the story outside the covers. And I just want to tell you that because I appreciate that greatly. And well, be, that's
2: uh, lovely to hear. Thank you.
1: Just this morning, I... Well, I went to my local library because I wanted to pick up some other books I didn't have in my possession, and I got the paperback copy of Killing Floor. And when I'm reading this, I'm saying Killing Floor. The first thing that came into my mind was a slaughterhouse. Now, if I read this book, and I may have read it years ago, I would have not known how to reinterpret it until I read your book. You fill in a lot of the gaps. I used to think that Lee Child's books were formulaic. One is like the same. and It's just it's plugging in different things, but it's Rachel in a different situation where he's the white knight, the errant knight or something to that effect. Now when I read this book and just finished it this morning because I did want to complete it, there's a lot of insight about who he is. And I'm, and I'm reading the book and I'm saying early in the book, he kills off his brother. That would have been really upsetting. But now after reading your book, I understand about the relationships he has with his siblings. Is that important to understand?
2: Well, I don't think it... Um, I'm, I'm glad that enhan- it enhances your appreciation of the book. And you're not the first person to say that. And it's been very gratifying to me that people... You know, a number of people have said they enjoy the reach of books even more, <laughs> having read the biography. But I doubt it's necessary to it enjoying the book, otherwise he wouldn't have been so successful. <laughs> he doesn't need my biography for, for people to enjoy his writing. But I do think um, it, it does... I just think it's very fascinating right. to see how he's working through, whether consciously or unconsciously, because it's you know it's a bit of both. But he's drawing on that lived experience quite directly at times. You know the comparison of himself, of, of Jack Reacher and Joe Reacher. You know, it is a version of himself and his older brother and the way the father perceives them, you know, the relationship with the father, there are, you know, there are echoes there. So I do think it's it's very helpful. As far as formula, formulaic goes, I mean, in a way that wouldn't worry him that much because uh, one of the things that he was working to always was that reaches should be um, familiar territory for the reader. Right. Does it you know, yeah. when when a reader when a reader picks up a reacher book, they feel like they're coming home. Right. You know, they feel like they're sitting down in front of the fire, putting their slippers on, getting out of the pipe or whatever. And um, you know just feeling comfortable with an old friend who happens to be this fictional character. And he got that a little bit from his father even. You see, I found that fascinating, that it was his father, he, he once casually asked him, what do you look for in a good book? And his father said that it should be the same, but different. That's interesting. And I- I think it's it's fair to say right. that the books are the same but different. They're each quite distinctive, and I know he's always trying to do something a little bit a little bit different in each one as well, partly for his own intellectual satisfaction. I mean, he's a sort of highly intelligent, educated, well-read guy, and you know, to to produce twenty-four books with a single character. He had to bring the changes for his own um, entertainment as much as the readers.
1: <laughs> In your book, correct me if I'm wrong. There's an Ian Rankin reference, and I've sat down with Ian Rankin. He's a great writer, and the one thing that he said, and I've always remembered, that if you want to learn about a region, a country, a locality, a state, read its crime fiction. So reading all the books, which I consider crime fiction, the Reacher books, what will you learn about America? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, I
2: think we would learn that like every other place, it's a mix of good and bad. (laughs) I don't think that he's depicting America as, you know, a place of greater evil than anywhere else. The reason he chose America... Was for its sheer scale and its size, and its you know still you know the, the feeling that you're exploring and discovering the unknown because of that scale and size. And, you know, I once said to him as an Australian, "Couldn't you, have, you know, set, reach in Australia?" And he said, right. "Yeah, I could because the scale of the geography is similar, but you know, the audience isn't as big." <laughs> so um, I, I think, I, yeah, the point about uh, crime wanting to learn about a place or about a country. Uh, I think the point there is that, you know, he sees Reacher as a kind of semi-mythic character because, you know, he goes back and draws on all the old archetypes, but, you know, located in a largely realist environment. So he is quite attentive to detail. I, I think if you read Lee Child, you might, and especially if you haven't been to America, you might, you know you might actually get a really beautiful sense of the landscape <laughs> and, and the towns, the diners, <laughs> the pet, the gas stations, you know, the, the wide open spaces, the weather, the extremes. He definitely sees America as a place of extremes, both geographically and in terms of climate and also politically. You know, every possible... Uh, um, Opinion (laughs) resides there, basically.
1: So here's the question you've probably been asked a million times. Maybe you can anticipate where I'm going. It's the Tom Cruise question. Now, Mm -hmm. some people feel that Tom Cruise looks nothing like Jack Reacher. I believe reading your book, Lee Child has a different point of view about Tom Cruise is the right actor for the movies.
2: Well, I think he's run the full gamut of emotions as regards Tom Cruise. And I think although he himself accepted Tom Cruise and saw his strengths and his virtues, he became uh, weary of the constant battle with readers and fans. But I think the point is that he doesn't see the film as or films as impinging in any way on the books that he's has right, written
1: right.
2: he sees them as two entirely separate things no doubt partly because of his own background in television so he, he if you like sees the film with Tom Cruise in the lead who does not he does look nothing like creature no. right you know, there was this idea that he he would have the, um, the, the some of the inequalities of Reacher that he could project certain regional qualities but he sees the film as a kind of um, a cover version of one of his books if you like so he's written a great pop song and another artist comes along and interprets it and he's very relaxed about the degree of interpretation He, he allows freedom to those other artists those filmmakers and actors, to do their own thing with his words, with his story, with his character. But the readers are incredibly possessive, and increasingly so over the years, the fans. And, you know, there was a certain point when Reacher basically became public property. Yes. And and he belongs to the fans and the readers more than he belongs to his own creator, at that point, you know, about sort of 10 or 12 years in, that started happening, more or less around the time Tom Cruise came on board. And and so even if Lee Child says something about Jack Reacher, the fans aren't necessarily going to agree or accept his word. <laughs> you know, they may well object <laughs> because Reacher belongs to them. <laughs> That's how they see it, you know. The, the The decision to take on Tom Cruise was essentially a pragmatic one. Killing Floor was optioned on the day it was published back in 1997, but uh, the first film wasn't made till 2012. And you know, a number of um, there'd been a number of iterations. You know, in the meantime, it wasn't till 2005 that um, Tom Cruise bought the rights. So I think Lee, you know, basically wanted. A film to be made. He loves, he loves the movies and he
1: huh. wanted a, a, a film to be made of his book. And who doesn't? Gonna, <laughs> who doesn't? He's going to say no to Tom Cruise, basically. My guest right now is Heather Martin, the author of The Reacher Guy, biography of Lee Child. Now, W.B. Du Bois had a very famous statement calling Tunis. Is there Tunis between Jim Grant and Lee Child? And I'll tell you where I'm going. This is an odd way, it's the off ramp. But I'm fascinated by people who are multilingual, and I always like to ask, what language do you dream in? So I wonder, is there a separation between Jim Grant and Lee Child? Is there a different thought process when one is not Lee Child? And because Lee Child is essentially, is retired and he's maybe going back to Jim Grant. So I, yeah. know, I'm, I know I'm throwing a lot out there, but it fascinates me how you make this separation.
2: Well, well, I mean, for him, Lee Child is a public persona, or even if you like, a business proposition. And that's not, that's not to be callous or cold about the process of being a writer. Uh, he put his heart and soul into those books and is very um appreciative this. But you know, essentially that's what it is, it's a public persona. And I think he's he's very much looking forward to stepping away. And he's actually quite a shy man. Right. Which you wouldn't you wouldn't um you wouldn't particularly think if you saw him perform. But that's what he's doing. He's performing on stage. I mean, he's renowned as an excellent speaker and a great interviewer, very entertaining, very charming, a lot of charisma, great presence on stage. But that's all, you know, it's a performance. And um, as as Jim Grant, he's a very kind of regular guy, just, you know, no airs and graces. And I think, uh, yeah, he's looking forward to stepping off the podium, <laughs> if you like.
1: I saw a YouTube interview with him recently, and he and, and he said basically – and I'm paraphrasing – that it comes a point where you don't want to lose what we call in America your fastball. He thinks he could have probably kept reading two or three more books, but he doesn't want to go out. He wants to go out on his best work and his best books. And he also says reaching back into his family history, there was something that was inculcated, that you basically retired at the age of 65. And Mm -hmm. I think he's approaching that age. So it's a very thoughtful process that he's going through because I I think it's a sentinel, which was written with his brother, Andrew. That's right. Is that all part of his thought process about where he wanted to finish up?
2: Absolutely, although I think the the he wanted to stop, basically. He wanted to retire. You've got it exactly right. And he'd always seen that as the, uh, you know, you hit 65, you retire. That's what his father did. We come back to that point of the influence of his 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 um, family. That's what his father did. That's what his grandfather did. And he's a very kind of a modest man in many ways. He sees what he does. He You know, he's writing as a craft and it's a job that he does as well as he can, and he produces the best possible product that he can. But it's, you know, no different to working on the factory floor. Right. It doesn't matter whether you're a best-selling writer. He's got, you know, as I say, no airs
3: and graces.
2: Um, it doesn't matter if you're a best-selling, you know, novelist or working on the factory floor. When you've done your 45 years, you know, you're allotted 45, your time is up, you've done your job, you've earned your retirement, you can put your feet up in the sun. He always intended to do that. He wanted to do that. The readers didn't want him to do that and, of course, as you can understand, the publishers did not want him to do that. And Andrew is the perfect solution. Already a novelist, younger, one of the first readers of Reacher. Right. Um, grew up with Reacher insofar as Reacher is a version of Lee Child. I mean, who better to provide if you like the same but different? Um, so, yeah, I think you've got to also got to remember, and people forget this, 27 years of Work on the Reacher books as a writer. That was a second act career, right? On top of 18 years in television shift work. Um, you know, so he's, 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 he's paid his dues, he's done his stint, and yeah, it's an unfashionable um approach, but it's a very honest one, I think. You know, I, I'm going to put down my pen now, I've done my day's work.
1: <laughs> well, I, he's still doing things, and I'll tell you why. I have a copy of. How to Write a Mystery, a Handbook for Mystery Writers of America, edited by Lee Child with Laurel R. King. And there's two chapters in there. One is Jeffrey Deaver, who I had a chance to sit down with. And in that chapter or that article, it's about outlining. outline, followed by Lee Child that says, you don't need to outline. So, yeah. so I would want to put some information out there because I'm, I believe there's writers also listening to this podcast, off the Periscope. So why does one gifted writer, very successful, So you have to outline. And one is another one, probably sold millions of books and highly successful and became very wealthy, says, I don't need to outline. So what yeah. was he referencing?
2: Well, uh, yeah, he's, he's become renowned as the man with no plot, if you like, even though as well, he was like, oh, he has great plots. You know, the man with no plot, he doesn't plan, he doesn't plan in advance. It's a one draft guy, very important to him. And it's because he feels he doesn't want to produce any uh, text that's overwrought or over-tampered with. So one draft doesn't mean stream of consciousness. It doesn't mean some kind of outpouring from the subconscious. It doesn't mean writing fast or uncritically. Really the opposite, um, sort of, you know, the way you, he would say that the way you write first is the most natural way and the most authentic and to go back and change things seems to him a kind of a betrayal of fictional reality, of, of Reacher's reality. So if there's a kind of a if he encounters a problem in the plot, that's Reacher's problem, Reacher will solve it. So that's for him what you know retains the authenticity of his writing. There are risks inherent in that, of course, and that's the reason he writes very, very slowly. Um, because he's you know, thinking very carefully and very sensitively about each sentence and how it leads to the next, so he's aiming to get it right first time. But the other thing I would say is that of course he starts each day by uh, rereading what he wrote the day before right. or the session before, and and he you know he'll do some fine tuning, he'll do some you know, finessing, some polishing. So if you like, it's all redrafted once, but as he goes along, and 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 again, I would say that. That's such an important thing for him, and it has to do very much with the fact that he wants the reader to feel like he, when you're reading the book, it should be like someone's telling you a story. So, you know, um, he, he wants to sort of tap into that sort of ancient love that we have of listening to stories. All right, here's,
1: here's the last thing I'm going to ask you. I'm going to switch gears dramatically because I know you're living in England. I have to ask you about your thoughts and opinion about brexit what do you think about that and how that affects the general population
2: <sighs> you you know it's such a mess larry we've been li- living with brexit for so long now since 2016 it's taken so long to enact it um that everything about it has changed i was myself never a fan i mean uh, <laughs> I, i'm a sort of European at heart, or a cos- you know cosmopolitan at heart. Right. Uh, I think we're better together, basically. So I was personally never a fan. I think it's a disaster. I think we're sort of um, cutting off our nose to spite our face, essentially. Uh, but at the same time, it's a reality now, so we have to live with it, and we have to, yeah, we have to we have to live with all the people who wanted it, <laughs> and just. Um, Muddle through somehow. But yeah, I don't think it, I can't see any positives myself.
1: The reality is, Heather Martin's book, The Reacher Guy, a biography of Lou Child, is a terrific book. And Heather Martin, thank you so much. I appreciate your time.
2: Thank you very much, Larry. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Uh, after the break, Jennifer Murphy joins the conversation. I'm Larry Davidson, listening to the podcast, Audible the Periscope. We'll be right back.
0: The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com.
1: I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Now, if we want to move from point A to point B, we just put one foot in front of the other, and we get to where we want to go. How do words Move
3: us. The second you put on a uniform, people forget you're a human being. They call you a hero, endow you with superhuman qualities you may or may not possess bravery, strength, resilience. I'm not by nature a courageous woman. Bravery is a performance. It's something I had to practice in order to excel at on the street where the stakes were unbelievably high. Before I could demonstrate valiance in the face of human catastrophe, I had to be hauled through the hellscape of failure.
1: Those words come from my next guest, the author of First Responder, A Memoir of Life, Death, and Love on New York City's Front Lines, Jennifer Murphy. So nice to see you.
3: Nice to see you as well. Thanks for having me.
1: I look forward to this. We've had a couple of conversations on the phone, and now we get to meet kind of incense through Zoom in person. So... Mm -hmm. Is your book about, and correct me if if I'm way off base or not be the first time, about relationships, connections, and institutions?
3: Yes, absolutely. I think that that nails it. In fact, my editor uh, and agent, when reviewing a draft of the manuscript, the title of the book is, of course, First Responder. So the reader is anticipating uh, scores of emergency. But at heart, it's a book about relationships.
1: Now, did the, it was the book cathartic for you?
3: Yes and no. I think it was written very quickly between really June and October, so about six months um, while being on the ambulance, having just come off the spring of 2020. So in one sense, I think it was very salvational to have a place to write down what I was seeing in the street and had been taking notes about things I was seeing for years. Right. And on the other hand, In order to make it come alive on the page, I had to re-experience it. So I lived it on the street, and then I came home to my apartment and lived it again and again and again on the page.
1: Did it start off as a novel?
3: I had a novel in progress that I actually started shopping right when COVID hit. And um, and. And it kind of abandoned and reverted some parts of that novel to nonfiction because the true story started to feel more urgent and interesting than the masked version that I had kind of trying to, I'd been trying to to work into a novel for some years.
1: Years ago, I sat down with Jeanette Walls, wrote the book called The Glass Castle.
3: It's a wonderful book.
1: Probably one of the most successful memoirs of all time. And this is what she told me. This is my story. These are my memories. My memories made me different from my siblings and other people in my life, but this is how I remembered it and this is how I wrote it. Do you agree with that, that this book is your memories and it may differ from other memories of other people that you write about in the book?
3: I do, I mean, it makes me teary-eyed to hear you mentioned that. I, I remember at a writer's conference called Sirenland in Italy years back, Tobias Wolf was there, who of course wrote um, one of the kind of landmark memoirs uh, of our time. And and he was saying the same thing that, you know, the memoir is his story, his memory, his recounting of events that might differ from those of his family members and the public. And my memoir is, a, of course, the same way. It's my, I'm the filter. I'm right. the the voice that's that's kind of telling all of the stories. And I did find it interesting at times. It was a very collaborative book. People who have a big sections of the book and the kind of main voices you hear, I gave an opportunity to read their sections and correct things or pull back things that they didn't want to maybe share publicly. And everyone was so supportive. But I think they too, in the end, yielded to me as a narrator. And I kept hearing again and again and again I trust you, I trust you. And, and where my memory failed, I thought it was rather fascinating to have their version of events included.
1: Sometimes memories can be repressed. We have a couple things in common. Hopefully we're gonna to get to that. But one thing we have in common is Darren Strauss, mm. who, who praised you in terms of the book. And I have the utmost respect for Darren as a person and also as a writer. Now, when I first sat down with Darren, it was because of Chang and Eng, his first novel. Later on, he wrote his own mem- memoir called Half a Life. I did not know, and I interviewed him many times before that. I did not know his story and what came back into his focus. In terms of repressed memories, and maybe I'm overstating that, there was a very traumatic event that happened when you were growing up in California to a family and a massacre, Can you share that story with us, please?
3: Yeah. So when I was a teenager, you know, my family was uh, an interesting family to grow up. in. But my dad had an an anger problem. And so I was always uh, walking on eggshells around him. And he he knew he had an anger problem. He just couldn't really control it. And then I played volleyball in high school and in college. And in high school, one of the girls I played with, um, her father murdered her and her entire family. So killing... You know, three three daughters, the wife, and himself at the end, and um, and this went undiscussed in my family. I was told that that it happened. I wasn't told how. I wasn't told why. I don't know that anybody ever understands the why of a murder suicide. But um, I think the the fact that it was just kind of delivered, and then. It landed and there was nowhere to really talk about it therapy wasn't in circulation the school the volleyball team nobody did anything to kind of you know debrief us after right. this incident
1: right
3: and and it went it law that lodged into me like a knife and kind of never went away until i was in adulthood and i couldn't remember Certain uh, facts about my friends, even her name. I couldn't remember the full name. I couldn't remember where she lived, which was just outside of Bakersfield where I grew up. So I couldn't really research it. And it, it certainly was an event that haunted me much of my early life.
1: When I'm working out, I don't listen to music, I listen to podcasts. And my go to podcast is WTF, Mark Marin's podcast. Ah, oh, I know Mark. All right. Well, maybe you can hook me up because (laughs) I listen to it all the time. And the reason why I'm mentioning that is he puts his whole body and soul into that conversation. He shares himself because, well, first of all, he's so well-connected in the the comedy world. He gets almost anybody he wants to get, but they are fascinating conversations. Once he starts talking about his new cat and unfortunately – his love of his life died a while ago and all the things he went through in terms of uh, alcohol abuse and drug abuse. People just, it just becomes, you're sitting in somebody's living room listening to this conversation. Yeah. You are pretty candid about your personal life, about what you went through leading up to where you are now. Can you share some of that? And are you comfortable sharing that? Because I'm once again, I'm, I'm listening to Mark and he puts everything in his life and he doesn't hold back. Because he doesn't hold back, the windows are, and the doors are wide open. And I'm just going down, listening to this, and I'm saying, this is this is as good as it gets in terms of being edified about people's lives and what they do.
3: Yeah, I respect, the, I respect what Mark does a lot. I think he's very, very talented and generous with his storytelling and his interviewing. And I made a decision early on in the book to kind of open my life to readers and to whatever audience the book would find. Um, so that includes discussing things that, you know, like you just mentioned growing up in a family where I, I felt like I didn't belong, where I, I was very lonely, um, having a kind of, um, emotionally different, difficult upbringing, and then, uh, having a drinking problem that started very early in life and destructive behaviors that continued until I got sober, getting sober and, and meeting, um, uh, a friend and firefighter in sobriety who became a very important person in my life that later died in nine eleven. So, having cancer, I, I got diagnosed with malignant melanoma when I was thirty days sober. So, it's a lot. It's a it's a big story to carry, and it and the same hand, it is also um, the people in my life. All of them come from rather large stories, and certainly the people who wind up in emergency services and the military tend to come from very colorful backgrounds. They're drawn to a world for a particular reason. You know, it's a a feeling of belonging, of being needed, of family um, that many of us didn't feel in our early lives that can be quite powerful in adulthood and also quite damaging in ways because of what you're seeing on the street and in the field.
1: Now, I, I'm gonna go back to Mark Marin because I'm very reluctant to talk about my uh, personal life. In fact, if you know anything about the world of journalism, you're not supposed to put yourself into the story. 24 years ago, the month before my daughter was gonna be born, my wife at the time saw something in my head. She sent me to the dermatologist. He took one look at me and he said, I'm not even gonna biopsy biopsy it, I know what you got. He sent me to the best doctor ever, Dr. Arlen, and I went in for the consultation and sitting in the waiting room, I'm reading an article about melanoma, one month before my daughter's gonna be born. And I'm saying, all I want to happen is, I want a healthy baby. And then I walked in and he looked at me right there and he says, I'm going to excise it right away. And, and well, 24 years later, I have two spots in my forehead. You know, we all get basal cell. I was in the sun an awful lot uh, at altitude, running and doing all this stuff in Bolton, Colorado and always being out in the sun on the beach for too many years. So I go in and he's going to remove it. And he says, wait, just before you go, let me look at the rest of your head. He excises a little sample. One week later, he calls me back. After 24 years, you've got melanoma again. After 24 years. He sent me to the doctor who was trained by my original doctor. And I'm just saying it's I don't, I don't even know where to go with this, but when I'm reading your book, there are two parts of the book that had I had a strong visceral reaction. The first was dealing with melanoma. I was so lucky because it was in my head. and what they said, it doesn't metastasize if it's on other as well if it's on other parts of the body. So that, in that way, I was fortunate. So when you write about this in your book, and I know we want to go any further with that, at your young age, I was a lot older than you, and I know you had another cancer scare, that has to really put you back in your place and think about, where am I going with my life?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I remember I was 24, I believe it was 1999 when I got diagnosed. And it really doesn't matter what they stage you at, stage one, stage four, stage three. Of course, there's severity in in the the prognosis. But once you hear a doctor say cancer, melanoma, malignant, it's a life-changing diagnosis. And I was very lucky, blessed to be treated at Sloan Kettering. And Dr. Alan Halpern treated me, head of dermatology at the time. I believe he's still there. He was an angel. And they kind of kept me under close watch for seven years, with the understanding that it would come back because the damage was from early life, from growing up in the '70s and '80s in the desert as a fair-skinned, freckled person. Right. So I had severe sunburns all the time as a kid. That was; those were just kind of the times. And um, and actually, you know, last week I went in for my routine exam, and I've been you know, cancer free, I've had biopsies taken. And then of course you go through waiting for biopsy results. And this last week they took two biopsies and didn't like things that they saw. And I've been on the phone all week trying to get the biopsy results, which haven't come in yet. And I think the big difference is, you know, you live your life in a certain way after you've had a diagnosis like that. I mean, I remember with shocking clarity exactly where I was standing. I remember the people I saw that day. I remember thinking, I want to be a writer. I hate my job. And I made decisions based on that diagnosis to rearrange my life according to things that I personally found satisfying. And I think, frankly, I wouldn't wish a cancer diagnosis on anyone, but it's made me extremely useful to other friends who've gotten diagnosed with cancer. I've had dozens of them over the years. Some have lived, some have not. And I'm very useful to them. And it's also made me much more willing to take risks and live in a certain way that I don't think I would if I was I was kind of under the illusion that I would just have a, a carefree life until I, you know, got old and died in my sleep.
1: Um, my name is Larry Davidson. Um, this is the podcast off from Periscope. Let me reintroduce my wonderful guest, Jennifer Murphy. Her book is called First Responder, a memoir of life, death, and love on New York City's front lines. So let's go to the part of the book that, well, every chapter is fascinating, but the chapter called Sister Wives. Yeah. Let's talk about that because that's what gets back to connections and relationships. And you have some interesting, unique unique relationships with the people you work with. And also Pat, who you touched upon, and Mike, and a kind of uh, what I call, and I'm not being flippant, the old TV series called "A Three's Company with John Ritter yeah. and Joyce DeWitt <laughs> and Suzanne Somers. So I hope I didn't uh, um, offend I you. I grew up on that show. Oh, yeah. but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about that, and I'm big into old TV shows. And I'm thinking, boy, this kind of reminds me on the flip side of your relationships with these very important people in your life.
3: Yeah. Yeah, and so Pat's brother, Pat Pat Brown, who died in 9-11, was a, a kind of legend in the FDNY, very known worldwide and respected. Um, his brother, Mike, uh, when he got diagnosed with cancer, World Trade Center related from Digging the Pile, um, Pat's kind of last love, Ilva, one of my close friends, We we just decided to kind of take on Mike as our... <laughs> <laughs> brother, husband, friend, child, you know, there was this kind of mythic surrounding of him uh, to make sure he wasn't lonely when he was getting treated in New York and that he always had company. And of course he was also very well taken care of by his family. But we, we, we really did surround him and, and kind of engaged in this, you know, this makeshift family of sorts and a marriage, of course, because Mike was a very macho guy and liked to think of having two wives and it became this kind of hilarious. It it was made for TV. I mean, we laughed so hard, you know, know, walking around Manhattan, taking him to shows or going to dinner, going to museums and and doing things that he'd never really done before. I mean, he got a life changing um, and in, in, you know, put bluntly life ending diagnosis. And so I think it was this, this moment, you know, Ilva had always been a very important person in my life. Um, she's an amazing woman and, and very loyal to Pat even posthumously. And, and I think, you know, having them in my life was in a way like having Pat back, um, just feeling like, We're all very connected to 9-11. We're all very connected to Mike was an ER doctor. So when COVID struck and he was kind of stuck in Vegas, he was very, very helpful for me. as Somebody who was on the ambulance, I called him almost after every tour. And, um, you know, I think tragedies like, knowing somebody who's been violently murdered or 9-11, COVID, where you're seeing the faces of a mass casualty incident firsthand, these aren't really events of war that you, that you get over in this lifetime. You know, you kind of find a way to live with them and around them. And and Ilda has certainly been a kind of... Um, Just unwavering sister, or as Mike would say, wife.
1: (laughs) Uh, I told you on the phone, I'm not Oprah Winfrey. I don't go looking to get somebody to be overly emotional. So if I took you in that direction, um, it's not me and forgive me, but uh, raw emotion, I think, is what part of you all are about. Sometimes uh, it's necessary to feel these things deeply.
3: Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big advocate of, I always tell people, you know, I speak a lot. I speak a lot for my job at conferences and I'm brought places at times to tell my story. If people think it will be useful to a group. And and I always tell people before I speak, like, don't be alarmed if I cry. I, I have no shame about crying in public. There's nothing wrong with seeing someone cry in many ways. I think we should all be crying every day. <laughs> the world isn't, tatters. And um, I think the problem is not the crying. You know, the problem is that people are just going on as if nothing is wrong.
1: Um, it's in a sense, you are highly educated. Your day job is fascinating. You want to talk about that too. Were well, you're going against type by becoming a first responder. And I think you do great on tests, but I'm thinking about the first time as an observer, you're on the ambulance, and I think about my daughter. Says the imposter syndrome. I'm good with taking tests, but I don't know what I'm gonna, what I'm doing when. Because she's getting her doctorate in physical therapy, and I'm so proud of her. But I think she's wrestling with that too. When I'm actually gonna be doing what I'm trained to do, will I be capable in doing that? And I tell her, yes. Yet yeah, my daughter's name is. Yes, you are having no problem. Just a matter of. Doing something over and over and over again, and then you get comfortable, and then your talent comes out. so were you working against type by kind of being working to be an EMt and on an ambulance
3: absolutely i mean I think I'm a bookish woman. I spend my days like reading and writing, tending to my three thousand house plants. I like to travel a lot um but It's also services in my blood. I have a lot of service members in my family. I love being in the field. I love service people. So I'm drawn to that world. And I'm also very acclimated to crises and emergencies. I thrive when when there's a kind of ticking clock or things are urgent. But for any new EMT, new medic, police officer, firefighter, soldier, there is a huge leap from the classroom onto the ambulance, into the field. And... In some ways, the more serious calls, the most serious typically being a cardiac arrest, where you have a pulseless um, patient, is is the, the most straightforward call because it's not dynamic. The patient is not speaking. But once you get on the ambulance, you know nothing really prepares you for how you're going to feel when you see something for the first time, how you are going to relate to difficult patients, relate to patients who are in agony or, you know, If you walk into an apartment and you see a patient in extreme neglect, that's always very difficult for me. Anything bad happening to a child, a pediatric emergency, you will generally see first responders lose it, often openly and on the street. So I think that, you know, I I so appreciate you having me read some of the opening of the book, because I think that is some of the central um, material that I was trying to write against is that. You know, the, the, the uniformed world is just a world of kind of cold, heroic, tough people. It's not. Sometimes the most sensitive rescuers are the best rescuers. And I agree with what you told your daughter. I think it's a matter of training. And it's also just a matter of practice and practice and practice and practice and exposure. And you, whenever you're on a call where you, you're truly having a quote unquote, oh shit moment, You know, you you hope that the next time you go into that, um, that you're going to have a different response. But there's an extreme learning curve in emergency services, for sure.
1: All right. So you said it. Did you have have an oh shit moment right after George Floyd and the whole country was imploding and there were a lot of demonstrations in Brooklyn and there were people very, very angry Uh, throwing objects at police, fire trucks, and even ambulances. Were you ever worried that you're getting from where you were to an ER room, you're going to have a problem because the streets are blocked with demonstrators? Did you ever experience that or think about that?
3: Yeah, we experienced that almost constantly during the protests because there were thousands of people some nights and days in the streets. And... Just getting to the ambulance base at some some days took me over an hour, whereas I live, you know, 25 minutes from the base from my house across Brooklyn. And then there were times during the protests where we couldn't get our patients to certain hospitals because the roads were barricaded because of the protests. And you know, it was a, it? was a it was a difficult, sad, violent, chaotic, horrible moment um, on the street. And I think what made it tougher was that we were all just coming off working COVID for right. two months. Right. And we were just starting to feel like maybe we made it out of this. And, you know, it's very disheartening to go through COVID and and, and be on the ambulance and see all of the death and then go to the protests because there are injured protesters or injured police officers and have people mistake you for police and throw things at you. And, you know, it was... Yeah, it's a very heartbreaking time. So I think um, I don't know what to say about it, except that it was it was a long summer, a very long summer on the street.
1: My guess is Jennifer Murphy. The book is titled First Responder, a Memoir of Life, Death and Love on New York City's front lines. So when I see an ambulance coming and I was pull over and I know they're about to go through an intersection with a red light, I just say. Please get through. (laughs) As an ambulance driver... How were you? What were you like? Did you clip a few uh, side view mirrors off cars at one time? Or you, you know people to that. talk. About <laughs> there's,
3: a, there's a joke with my partners that every one of the all the books should come with free side mirrors. Um, yeah, I mean people who drive emergency vehicles hit things all the time. I think fire trucks and ambulances is perhaps a bit more than police since their vehicles are a manageable size. But you know, in New York City, driving around Brooklyn the bane of your existence is double parked delivery cars and in New York city is a double parked nightmare. So then the ambulance is a big truck. If you have one of the, the nicer vehicles, you're in a big truck. It's not for the faint of heart, but uh, you know, that too is a matter of experience. I mean, I still, I, I largely ride at night. And so thank goodness there's a little bit less traffic and less delivery vehicles on the streets, but I've had my moments where, you know, you make a wrong turn and you can't get down the street because of the vehicles or the road is tiny or, but in the back of your mind, I mean, at least my mind when I'm driving, the bottom line is I know, I don't want to hit anyone. Right. And then anything is very, very, very far away from hitting anyone. So, you know, in New York city, we have a lot of pedestrians that cross the streets on and off red lights and bikers of all different paces, especially delivery bikers. Those guys get hit by cars all the time. And so, you know, there's always a low-grade stress that comes with driving in an urban environment. But the rural EMTs have it no easier just in terms of keeping the patient stable during longer transports. Right. So, right. you know.
1: I am admirer of comedians. Obviously, Mark Maron, because I think they are, in a sense, the ultimate truth-tellers. And I like Woody Allen's movie called Broadway Danny Rose. There's a scene in there where all the comedians, and they're all well-known comedians in that world, are sitting and talking and telling stories in a deli in New York City. That's their comfort zone. What is your comfort? I think I would I would I think I know it. But I want to ask you in terms of the people that you care about and are comfortable with and have the oh shit moments that you'll say anything in any language. Who are your comfort zone? Who are the people?
3: Oh, they're for sure people on the street. Uh, service people are my people, and the humor on the street is unlike any other humor known to humankind. But I also find, you know, my my girlfriends are hilarious, and I, I mean, I certainly consider them comedians. Felice, my best friend slash sister, is all over the book, and she is by far one of the funniest people I know. Um, You know, when writing the book, I think people have noted a few times it's heartbreaking and hilarious and and tragicomic. And I think for me, that's my favorite tone. It's my favorite tone of art and it's my favorite tone of person, people who can make me cry laughing, but also who can touch me quite deeply and who are profound. And the street and, you know, being in the field, it offers both things.
1: Um, you have had t- terrific mentors when you were studying. Darren Strauss, for one, I bu- and I believe it's Nathan Eaglander, and I think he was referencing. A- I just saw it in Fargo, where everybody's being murdered all over the place with the wood chipper, and it's a, it's a, it's a- Francis McNorman's McNorm- in it. It's a-, it's a terrific, terrific movie, but oh, I think he's saying, and I think he's thinking about Fargo, and also thinking about you, and the different. Jennifer Murphy's who you are do you kind of understand where I'm going he's saying basically be careful that you don't murder various parts and components of your life these these people are, are all you
3: yeah yeah I think the book in many ways is about storytelling as a way to kind of save us there certainly it has saved me and and no one really knows including myself when you're writing what's real what you're really doing until you're on the other side of it and even now some readers point out things to me that I think oh that's quite insightful like, that sounds right to me but i didn't necessarily consciously do it when i was writing on the page but the i think the larger arc of the book was that stories really do save us the stories that we tell that we share with each other that make people feel less alone the stories that people have shared with me that have changed my life. And at the end of the day, kind of being able to accept all of the different parts of yourself, all of the sides to embrace them, the enraged side and the messy side and the vulgar side. I mean, I have to tell you, I'm, what, six six or so months out from, from turning in the book and having it go kind of into the world. It went into the world last month, but it went out of my hands about six months ago. And sometimes I read parts of it and I'm like, wow, someone sounds a little angry. Right, or <laughs> my aunt said, oh, nice language, you know. And I think part of the book's message is really that, yeah, that's right. The rage is earned. That's fair. It's a, it's a, it's a book with a big broken heart in the middle of it and a lot of chaos and a lot of laughter. And I think to let all of that stand has been very cathartic for me.
1: I'm going to reference uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And he said, we have free lives, public, private, and secret. Do you have a secret life? And if you do have, I'm sure, we'll have secret lives. I believe that is any of your secret life have showed up in the book first responder or having a secret life? It's just something you want to keep to yourself.
3: I think both. I think there's a lot offered in the book that prior to writing it, I would consider my secret life, um, something that only I know or a handful of people know. Um, and a lot of that is offered up in the book. You know, my Proclivity toward dating service members is a kind of running joke among my among my closest friends. It's nothing that my business clients would know a thing about. Right. Um, and the same thing for my sobriety. In never in a million years uh, would I you know, tell... There are people who've known me for 20 years who don't necessarily know that I'm sober. They know I don't drink, but they don't know the backstory. There are people who don't know anything about my family life. And part of me wanted to really open up my life, not only to people around me, but really to myself to kind of integrate it. And that felt phenomenal. And at the same time, there's a lot held back. And I remember having a discussion with one of my close friends, Ellery, Ellery Washington, who runs the creative writing program at Pratt. And he's in the manuscript at times. And I remember telling him that I was terrified to kind of open up my life. And and, and have all of my friends really exposed. I felt very protective of people in the book. And and he just said, you know, integrity, part of integrity comes from wholeness and just allowing your whole self to be there. And you will decide what you offer and what you don't offer. People will think they know you quite well after reading it, but you will you will know that there are things that you held back that are only for you. And that, I did find a great balance in the book of being generous, but also feeling like this thing, I don't want to share. You know, okay. that's just for me.
1: Well, you've been very generous with your time. We started this segment with you reading, we are going to finish also some words at the back of the book, the end of the book. Jennifer Murthy, take it away.
3: Understand that your loved one could not have done anything differently. They made the best choices they could for their own soul. Forgive them absolutely and yourself absolutely for any judgments you may have held about their treatments or final moments. They did a perfect job. So did you. Let go of your guilt, judgment, anger, and shame towards yourself and anyone else you might hold with resentment in your mind and heart about your relationship with them. Each of you did your best and you did a perfect job. Like them, you are to have no regret. Your loved one had their own path. Respect their path and do not diminish it by assuming you know better and think things could have been different. Be forever kind to one another as each of us carries deeply personal agonies from losing people we love. We are all we have. Let your anger fall away and remember that sickness and death are not wars to be won or lost. They are a natural part of life and we are all going home. When we do, we will see our lost friend.
1: The Irish have a saying, may the wind always be at your back. Jennifer Murphy, may the wind always be at your back. And also for the loved ones and all the people that you care about in your life.
3: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: After the break, the winds take us to Lawrence, Kansas, to a bookstore with just a thought of commentary with Danny Kane. We'll be right back. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Here now from Raven Books in Lawrence, Kansas, with just a thought of commentary, Danny Kane.
4: A letter to Jeff Bezos from a small bookstore in the middle of the country. Dear Jeff, last Wednesday, a customer bought a stack of books from us. Right before he left, he asked me, what parts of your business are affected by Amazon? I blurted out, every part. I had never articulated this before, but it's true. I know I'm not alone in saying this and not just among bookstores either. Your business has an unfair impact on every retail small business in America. I'm writing to you to try to illustrate just how many people your business affects in a negative way. Let's start with books because that's where we overlap and books are my bread and butter. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it certainly seems like the book part of your business is modeled like this. Sell books at a loss to hook people into Prime subscriptions, Kindles, Alexas, and other higher margin products. While the strategy has worked really well for you, it's totally disrupted everything about the book business, making a low margins business even tighter. Most dismayingly to us, your book business has devalued the book itself. People expect hardcovers to be 15 bucks and paperbacks to be under 10 Those margins are a nightmare for our bottom line, of course, but they also cheapen the idea of the capital B book. There's already enough happening to cheapen the idea of truth, research, and careful storytelling. We're dismayed to see the world's biggest book retailer reflecting that frightening cultural shift by devaluing books. This isn't just about business competition to us. We wish it were. We like business competition. We think it's healthy but the way you've set things up makes it impossible to compete with you. Often the tech and e-commerce world brags about disrupting old ways of doing things with new sleeker, more efficient tricks, but we refuse to be a quaint old way of doing things. And we're not ripe for disruption. We're not relics. We're community engines. We create free programming. We donate gift certificates to charity silent auctions. We partner with libraries and arts organizations. That stuff might seem small to someone aiming to colonize outer space, but to us in our community, it's huge. Our booksellers are farmers, authors, activists, artists, board members, city council representatives. For so many places, the loss of an indie bookstore would mean the loss of a community force. If your retail experiment disrupts us into extinction, you're not threatening quaint old ways of doing things. You're threatening communities. When I taught high school English, we did a business letter unit. Part of what I taught was to make sure every business letter has some kind of request so it's not a waste of time or paper. So what to request from you? Some of my peers want to break your company up. Some of them want to nationalize it. Some of them want it wiped off the earth. I see where they're all coming from, but I don't think that's what I'm after today. I could also request you to stop profiting off of ISIS violence, stop enabling counterfeit merchandise, Stop fostering a last-mile shipping system that causes injury and death. Stop gentrifying our cities. Stop contributing to the police state with your doorbell cameras. Stop driving your warehouse workers to exhaustion or injury, or so many other things. Perhaps I could just request an explanation of why this chaos and violence is apparently so essential to your strategy. Or maybe I could request a leveling of the playing field. Small business owners are led to believe that if their idea is good enough, they can grow their business and create more jobs. Yet your company is so big, so disruptive, so dominant that it's severely skewed the ability for us to do just that. I think a big part of leveling the playing field would mean fair pricing on your part. For our part, we try to level things by being really good at what we do and really loud. So we use our platform to try to teach people what's at stake as your company increases its influence and market share. I think it's starting to work. I get the feeling that we're seeing chips in Amazon's armor. Whenever we share stuff like this, it seems to resonate with our audience. Maybe someday you'll hear what we have to say. Maybe we can talk about it, you and me, over pie and coffee at Ladybird Diner across the street. My treat. I'd love to show you around a vibrant community anchored by small business here in Kansas, here on Earth. Maybe it'll help you realize that some things don't need to be disrupted. Sincerely, Danny Kane, owner, Raven Bookstore, Lawrence, Kansas.
1: Books, books, books. Thank you, Heather Martin. Thank you, Jennifer Murphy. Thank you, Danny Kane. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye bye.
0: Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro sound editors and engineers Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa and you can find her music at starfrost.com October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com If you enjoy this podcast visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.